This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Patine podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. Is art the pathway to the less accessible, darker parts of our consciousness? It seems to be the way for us to examine and understand things that would be too frightening and ugly for us to connect with directly. According to Carl Jung, within our unconscious minds lies a psyche made up of 12 archetypes. Jung claimed that our unconscious minds are fragmented or structured into different selves. These selves attempt to organize how we experience different emotions, situations, and challenges in life. One of those 12 aspects he called the shadow self. According to LonerWolf.com, the shadow self forms part of the unconscious mind and is composed of repressed ideas, instincts, impulses, weaknesses, desires, perversions, and embarrassing fears. This archetype is often described as the darker side of the psyche, representing wildness, chaos, and the unknown. Jung believed that this latent energy is present in all of us, in many instances forming a strong source of creative energy. Jung said, quote, Everyone carries a shadow, and the less it is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. End quote. The shadow isn't inherently evil. In fact, the shadow self is a natural part of development. Shunning it, creates the many forms of mental, emotional, and spiritual dis-ease. Some of the sickest people I've met are those that make no attempt to engage with their shadow and even go so far as to shun it or deny its existence at all. Repression of the shadow self appears to be the root of addictions, low self-esteem, mental illness, chronic illnesses, and various neuroses. Again, according to LonerWolf.com, Rejecting, suppressing, denying, or disavowing the shadow, whether consciously or unconsciously, is harmful and dangerous. The thing about the shadow self is that it seeks to be known. It yearns to be understood, explored, and integrated. It craves to be held in awareness. The longer the shadow stays buried and locked in its jail cell deep within the unconscious, the more it will find opportunities to make you aware of its existence. Both religion and modern spirituality have a tendency to focus on the, quote, love and light aspects of spiritual growth to their own doom. This overemphasis on the fluffy, transcendental, and feel-good elements of a spiritual awakening results in shallowness and phobia of whatever is too real, earthy, or dark. Spirituality bypassing one's inner darkness results in a whole range of serious issues. 
some of the most common and reoccurring shadow issues that appear in the spiritual-slash-religious community include pedophilia among priests, financial manipulation of followers among gurus, and of course, megalomania, narcissism, and God complexes among spiritual teachers. Other issues that arise when we reject our shadow side can include hypocrisy, believing and supporting one thing but doing the other, lies and self-deceit, both toward oneself and others, uncontrollable bursts of rage slash anger, emotional and mental manipulation of others, greed and addictions, phobias and obsessive compulsions, racist, sexist, homophobic, and other offensive behavior, intense anxiety, chronic psychosomatic illness, depression, which can turn into suicidal tendencies, sexual perversion, narcissistically inflated ego, chaotic relationships with others, self-loathing, self-absorption, and self-sabotage. And there are many others. Additionally, you may find yourself expressing messy interpersonal relationships, frequent emotional outbursts, less passion, and recurring patterns and consequences. This is by no means a comprehensive list, and there are likely many other issues out there. It is through intensive work with our shadow that we are able to face the parts of ourselves otherwise too horrific to even glance at. An essential component of spiritual and psychological growth is learning to face your shadow self. Humans have engaged in shadow work since ancient times. In fact, the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh, dating back to the early 3rd or late 2nd millennium BC, is humanity's oldest known work of literature and addresses shadowy themes. The story follows Gilgamesh, a mythological hero king of Uruk, and his half-wild friend Enkidu as they undertake a series of dangerous quests and adventures. And then, Gilgamesh's search for the secret of immortality after the death of his friend. Gilgamesh falls into a deep grief and, recognizing his own mortality through Enkidu's death, questions the meaning of life and the value of human accomplishment in the face of ultimate extinction. Those are pretty dark themes. Artists, writers, and musicians continue to explore consciousness's shadow aspects. A quick look at any of the works of H.P. Lovecraft and his Cthulhu mythos is a blatant example of this kind of work to address shadow. The Cthulhu mythos is a self-contained literary universe ruled by a pantheon of fearsome deities, many of whom resemble insects or aquatic life. These things live just beyond what we dare to see and are all around us, always. Other giants of horror literature like Stephen King with It and Clive Barker's Hellraiser expose some of the darkest parts of our consciousness in an entertaining way. Musicians, too, in particular heavy metal artists like Ministry, Metallica, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, Led Zeppelin, and countless others, dive deep into things occult and other dark topics, making those things more palatable for all of us to encounter. It's easy to celebrate our strengths, but what triggers the growth that many of us seek to create is learning to face our weaknesses, thus forming a healthy relationship with our shadow. In this episode, we'll hear from Morgan as she addresses some scary tales and creatures that seem to have come from humanity's darkest reaches. Later, we will hear our interview with artist Mr. Sam Sheeran. Mr. Sam Sheeran is a British dark artist born in Liverpool, England. He specializes in horror and science fiction. His work often includes elements inspired by vintage tales of monsters and madmen, dark futures, post-apocalyptic genres including cyberpunk, and industrial wastelands and classic literature including H.P. Lovecraft's 
The Call of Cthulhu, Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, and modern classics like Clive Barker's Hellraiser and The Books of Blood, all of which he has fully illustrated. He's also designed scores of album covers and tour merchandise for a number of darker musical acts like Rob Zombie, Ministry, Cradle of Filth, and Ramstein. Here's Morgan. Who's telling your story? It's a big question, and one most people are utterly unaware of, until they are asked to write it down and read it back. Whether you're creating a story about a cursed cabinet or about your own life, stories have a way of snowballing into real effects. And the more often a story is told, the more concrete it becomes. It's amazing to me how stories born of creativity, basic perception, and on occasion outright lies can begin to change the way our minds perceive the world around us. There have been many such cases over the years, such as the internet sensation of Slenderman, a character created by Eric Knutson as an online horror trope for the Something Awful online forums contest, which soon became the center of a horrific murder in the United States. Something that began as a fictional romp was spun in the minds of two young children until they attempted to sacrifice their young friend by stabbing her 19 times in attempts to appease the spirit of Slenderman, who in their minds had become quite real. People have now reported seeing a representation or apparition of a similar figure throughout the years and have said on many occasions that these spiritual monsters are indeed very real and not a work of fiction at all. Some have even made the argument that the creature was actually drawn because of the image of Slender Man and that it had existed in various shapes and forms far beyond the creation of an internet Photoshop image. The character designer has maintained that it was his own creation and that Slender Man was nothing more than a drawing. But for the two 12-year-old girls, Anissa Wire and Morgan Geyser in Wisconsin, United States, Slender Man was as real as the friend they lured to her near death. In this particular case, mental illness was proved to be a factor in Geyser, yet not in Wire. While Geyser felt no empathy, Wire was described as feeling guilty for stabbing the victim, but felt that the attack was needed to appease Slenderman. While this is a pretty extreme case, the power of the stories we tell is illustrated. In 2001, Portland, Oregon, a fellow by the name of Kevin Manis was seeking out furniture at a yard sale for his furniture restoration company. He owned a little hole-in-the-wall business in Burnside Bridge, and as he was shopping, he came across an old cabinet. It looked all in one piece, but could use a slight bit of fixing up, so he purchased it and got to talking with the young lady hosting the yard sale. As a furniture restorer and history buff, he wanted to know where it came from and what journeys it had taken. As it turned out, the young lady was the granddaughter of a recently deceased Holocaust survivor who escaped Nazi-occupied Poland. Her family was tragically murdered in the Nazi occupation, and she, in turn, fled to Spain to escape them. When she moved courageously to the United States, the small wine cabinet was the only thing she took with her. As Manus paid for the cabinet, the girl said, Oh, I see you bought the Dybbuk box. Unfamiliar with the term, Manis inquired, and the young lady went on to explain that her grandmother had been diligent about keeping the cabinet locked away. In Jewish lore, Dybbuk boxes served as homes for evil spirits and should not be tampered with. 
She quickly informed him that the box should never be opened, and if he dared to disobey, his life would never be the same again. Manus dismissed the story and immediately took the box back to his shop for restoration as a gift. And upon opening it, he discovered a few odd items. Two U.S. wheat pennies dating back to 1925 and 1928, two locks of hair, a dried rosebud, a four-legged candlestick, a golden wine cup, and a granite sculpture inscribed with the Hebrew word shalom. A Jewish prayer was carved in the back of the box itself. Then on Halloween 2012, he passed the box to his mother as a gift. In an episode of Paranormal Witness, his mother described the box as having a feeling of pure evil coming out of it, but it didn't end there. Soon, Manus' family began to complain about the box, and over the course of two years, strange things allegedly happened, including the doors opening and closing by themselves, horrible smells coming from the open doors, recurring nightmares of a woman with sunken eyes and the brother of a shop employee committing suicide after knocking the box off a shelf by accident. Within a couple of years, the employee himself also committed suicide. When Manus tried to pawn the box off on his girlfriend, she claimed she began seeing shadow figures. And Manus felt he had no other choice but to list it on eBay and hope for the best. His description of the box was long and detailed, ensuring he included every last piece of the story he could remember in a buyer beware statement. He concluded it, with a spine-chilling phrase, help me. It sold, and reports began circulating about the Dybbuk box and its nightmarish qualities. Incidents from buyers including choking attacks, strange bleeding, and recurring dreams of a creepy old woman, to name a few. Even the singer Post Malone claimed he had frightening encounters with the box once it was in the hands of entertainer Zach Baggins, who grabbed it up for his haunted museum attraction in Las Vegas and featured it on a number of ghost adventure episodes. He claimed to audience members again and again that this was a demon-haunted box with a history of terror befalling anyone who owned it. His film crew claimed they saw a figure manifesting inside the box, although the cameras captured nothing. In the ensuing months of his encounter, Post Malone stated his home was broken into and his plane needed to make an emergency landing and not long after that, he was involved in a car wreck. All of these incidents he attributed to the encounter with the Dybbuk box. The media exploded with fascination around this strange cabinet and two movies were born from the stories. But reports didn't stop there. More owners came forward, claiming they were having strange misfortunes ever since owning the cursed cabinet. But things began unraveling in 2021, when journalist Charles Moss interviewed both Manus and the second owner, a man named Haxton, for Input magazine. In it, Moss wrote, Though both Manus and Haxton received money from their work on The Possession, the film, Haxton seemed to have benefited the most from the Dybbuk box financially and publicity-wise. He's considered the expert on the subject, partly because he had it the longest out of all its owners, partly because he wrote the book, and partly because he's made himself so available for media appearances. Jason was very Johnny-on-the-spot to make money off of it. Haxton, who I've spoken to on the phone and emailed with quite a bit, has some criticism of his own for Manus. 
I think Kevin was shocked because though he might have come up with the idea and the concept, he would have never gotten the book written, Haxton says. He never finishes anything. He would have never gotten the movie done. I got red carpet treatment and everything. I was with the stars and he was the background noise and it probably pissed him off. But that's the way it is. Manus, for his part, denies that the frame surrounding Haxton's book and public appearances ever bothered him. Finally, the truth about the Dybbuk box was finally confessed in a conversation between Manus and Moss in a second interview. Charles Moss pulled no punches and called Manus on what he suspected was an elaborate lie. Manus owned up quickly, stating that the Dybbuk box eBay listing was indeed a well-written hoax. He stated to Moss, I'm a creative writer. The Dybbuk box is a story that I created. And the Dybbuk box story has done exactly what I intended it to do when I posted it 20 years ago, which is to become an interactive horror story in real time. He went on to state that the box did indeed come from a yard sale. However, no Holocaust survivors were involved and the original owner was an attorney. He said, the carving in the back is my carving. The stone that was in the box is something that is a signature creation of mine also. Make no mistake, I conceived of the Dybbuk box, the name, the term, the idea, and wrote this creative story around it to post on eBay. Taking the investigation further, Moss interviewed two of Manus's close friends, one who confessed that the hair found in the box upon its opening was actually his own. They also praised their friend for being a brilliant storyteller and that the motivation behind the prank was actually due to a relationship issue Manus had been experiencing with his girlfriend. Angry and frustrated, he decided to put his energy elsewhere and create one of the most elaborate hoaxes in recent history. So what about that heart-stopping interview Ida, his own mother, gave on Paranormal Witness? Well, it was an Oscar-worthy performance and a bit of motherly support, as Manus called it. And in order to keep it going, he kept adding new details to the public's attention through shows and entertainers, such as Zach Baggins, who continued to feature it in his show and his attractions. Kevin Manus stated, the only way to regain control and to have a viable asset was to keep writing the story. And right, he did. So much so, Baggins still has the prop in the museum, perhaps because he invested so much time into it. Either way, the legend of the cursed cabinet continues and leaves little doubt that a good story, coupled with a great storyteller, is a powerful tool. You are your greatest storyteller. You're telling yourself a narrative, true or untrue, every moment of every second of every minute of every day. That being said, it is easy to have others slip into that narrative as well. Parents, peers, friends, and bosses. Who are you allowing to write your narrative? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Let's get into it anyway, because I know Mike's dying of the heat <laughs> as well, because everybody's roasting. Um, so, Sam, it's it, first of all, it's so good to have you here. And it, it's it's so great because, I mean, we've we've talked so many times in the past and you did such a brilliant job on my cover of Paranormality magazine. It is on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just I'm, I'm just so honored to to have that to to, ha- to have you do that. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background, because I, people know your art, but I'm not sure many people know how you developed as an artist. Um, wow. Where shall I begin? When I was born, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I was born in Liverpool, England, and um, you know, like most part, people in the sort of art industry, um, they start off going to art college and doing their degrees and stuff, as much as I did as well. Um, but really, I, you know, I hate to say it, but it really didn't um, teach me anything in a sense. Uh, it, it's more of a self-development thing I think especially for me anyway personally and, and a lot of my friends who are artists some of them didn't go to the university and they seem to have excelled in their career because they've had years ahead of me developing it themselves without following rules that really didn't apply to them um, so I find the education system and I think a lot of people these days are really kind of waking up to the idea that um, it's each to their own but it's not necessary yeah um, and so for me, I really only sort of developed to what I'm doing today um, in the last 20 odd years. You know, it's not, I, yeah, I'm 44 now. So I, I graduated when I was 21 and, and it was really only then that I sort of, I milled around for a few years and, you know, I got a bar job and stuff. And as much as I've been doing artwork and drawing monsters since I was a very small child, career wise, it didn't kick in as something that I would jump off into the deep end with and get on a plane and fly to LA for the first time until uh, 2007. So, you know, I've been out in and around Los Angeles for 15 years or so. And um, that's sort of where things have really started to fall into place where um, with the advent of MySpace, you could reach out to your favorite band or your favorite comic book writer or a film company and say, you know, I'd really like to work with you. And for the first time in history, you know, MySpace gave you this opportunity. And then even more so with Facebook, because prior to that, you'd have to, you know, you'd write to a record label or a publisher and, and, you know, most often you would just wouldn't get a reply because they didn't know who you were and there was no way to sort of really have a portfolio unless you knew how to build a website or if you knew someone who could or if you could afford to pay someone to build a website and even then did you have a portfolio so it was always tricky to be seen especially if you're starting out just out of university as well most people don't have a portfolio at that point um which i didn't um so for the most part the last as i say the last 10 years it's really kicked in and only in the last five have I finally decided exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> and what's that? What is it that you want to do? Well, I've always been fascinated with the unexplained, but for the longest time, 
and I blame it on my teenage years. Not that it's a bad bad thing, but you know, I've I've always been a fan of rock music and and heavy metal and that kind of thing. And so always I always wanted to do the album covers, and I always had it in my head that that's where I would maybe have a career. You know, that's where I would be known and make enough comfortable money to have a good life and you know buy a house one day. <laughs> Everybody's dream, you know, that that regular steady job. Um, but over the years, I've I've discovered that it's not, I've almost been kidding myself because I've put what I really love to the side, which is the unexplained. And as much as I've woven it in to the albums and, and book covers that I've done for other people, and, uh, you know, I've done comic book covers and stuff for the X-Files as well, and that does incorporate the unexplained, obviously. Um, and it's always been in the background, you know, as I, as I mentioned to you in the past, I've I've created for Clive Barker. And so there's that element of horror and the dark side is always there. I've created for Rob Zombie and, you know, various other um, fellow creators who have similar visions that I've helped bring to life. And yet I've never really fully explored my own universe and and the things that I would create for myself. I've always sort of been the hired gun. Um, And again, you know, I haven't complained. I've had a great career so far doing that. And I've built up a, you know, a really nice resume with, with some of the biggest names on the planet. And I'm really proud and I've had a, a great time doing that. But now I'm in a position where, okay, it's it's time for me. You know, I can't make everybody else look good forever. <laughs> you know, it's it's time for me to sort of step behind from behind the canvas and, and say, you know, this is this is still my work. It's always been my work, but now this is for me. Um, so I, I'm currently working on uh, my my creepy Christmas projects, which have been going on for a number of years in the background. I've now come to the forefront where I'm putting books together, um, and it's it's really exciting. I'm on the third year of doing a series of Christmas cards with up to thirty nine designs. Now um, there's an additional thirteen added, excuse me, uh, this year as well. And then a guidebook is almost like a, if you would imagine a role-playing bestiary of of different Christmas monsters is is also going to be on the back of that as well. And it all seems to tie together that it's finally a place where I can put what I love, which is Christmas more than Halloween, believe it or not, um, into a reality that's created by me. And it's not it's not really for anybody else's paycheck or pocket you know it's finally my work for me so that's where i'm at that's where i've come to um and it's refreshing you know it feels like i can breathe i love that you're doing christmas horror because uh, uh i often will do a horror episode for christmas i do a, a, oh, a true crime pop podcast but i'll i'll do uh, a bit of horror for christmas or just weird things I, i've done krampus and that oh, kind awesome. of thing and even santa claus as a criminal <laughs> but i collect Christmas horror movies like Santa's Slay, S-L-A-Y, you know, all of those kind of things, the the nightmare, you know, all of all of that kind of stuff. And uh, with this world that you're creating, do you have any sort of vision to bring it into uh, something that isn't just a, a static picture uh, and maybe make it live? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's currently on the table, uh, be an option for television and film. Um, <laughs> and I have two producers working on it now through my manager. And that's been going on for a couple of years. Um, with, but it's great because that means that, you know, I've already got my hands in that pie. 
Um, and it's always the danger of, you know, if you sit on something for too long, someone else does it. Mm-hmm. So true. And, um, <laughs> and that's, that can be really painful and it can be really upsetting, especially when they don't do it as well as you could have, you know, not to blow your own trumpet, but you, you know, you'll see something and you think, God, I had that idea like five years ago and, and they've done such a bad job and I would have done it so much better. You know, we've all had that kind of thing. Or if you're a writer, someone publishes a story and you think, oh, I've been sitting on that. I should have just written it. So that's really where I'm at at the moment where I've, I've put the copyright in place and I've put, um, you know, those those publications out there already in a sense that I'm putting my hand on it to say, I, I came up with this. And in that sense, it doesn't matter really if, uh, you know, a big production company comes along and takes it from me in a sense that they they not beat me to it but they create their own version of it and it's okay because it, it'll never be mine and they'll never be able to do it the way i do it so that's a, a, a self-reassuring kind of notion that i've learned to kind of adopt because you can't constantly live in fear and and be upset about someone stealing your work because that as we have spoken in the past about this that's always going to happen someone's always going to steal your work um, but it's never going to be as good as yours. So don't worry too much. <laughs> that That's always been something that I've told myself as well. And I find it such a not, not only a reassuring thing, just in case something like this actually happens. Mm. But I find as well that, you know, when you're when you're the one in competition with yourself, it, it just it makes the journey a whole lot easier than yeah. you know paying attention to whatever anybody else is doing. Um, and that's been my experience as well, whether it be with TV or art or, or anything like that. So it's, it's really good to hear you, <laughs> you say that as well. But speaking of Christmas um, and the, the folklore, I mean, Mike and I have done a, a number of episodes on this show about we've, we've done episodes on the Wendigo we've done um episodes just on a lot of the creepy winter characters like the Yeti mm-hmm. um and and things like that and I mean what's what have you found surprises people the most about the season when they discover this dark side to it because I, I don't think this is the picture of Christmas that everybody's got in their head um I think I mean the more I where do I start? I mean, here's the thing. It's it's such a, a sprawling world when you really tap into folklore itself, regardless of Christmas. Um, if we go back and we look at the last thousand years and beyond into Neolithic periods of pagan religions and things like that, um, it blows me away the wealth of material that can be found um, for, for writers and filmmakers and artists, um, but also in terms of cryptozoology and how some of these monsters today are rooted in those early legends. And it makes you wonder, you know, are these creatures really real then because they're that old and people are still seeing the same sort of things today? And that kind of thing, when you start tying reality to things like mythology and folklore, where it, it was generally maybe you know, some people would say, well, they're just morals and they're just lessons for people to learn, much like the stories in the Bible and the Christian world of, of, of that whole moralistic teaching kind of thing. It's the same in every religion. And of course, you have to remember that the church co-opted um, and adapted and molded a lot of the pagan religions into their own. So much of the Bible, you know, most people are sort of 
when they're anti-Christian in a sense, they sort of say, oh yeah, you know, the, sto- the church stole this and they made the devil look like the devil because it was based on Pan and they wanted to make people move away from those pagan religions. And so they demonized him by making their devil look like their God. And, you know, that's as far as people will really look. But I think what really does surprise people about the winter stuff is you split the, the seasons into four as, as a basic rule. But there's these, the 12 days of Christmas are filled with all kinds of characters that would, um, up to the Epiphany, which is the 6th of January, where the Messiah was recognized by the three wise men or the, the Magi who traveled from all parts of the world, following these ancient maps and constellations that there would be this, this being would be born, this, this Messiah, Savior. And, the, and you look at it from that weird magical almost star wars story kind of way and you think wow that's actually pretty dark and crazy and and there's so many other characters that are woven in from different stories that are are not ever mentioned in christianity or or on sunday in the church and that kind of thing um like the the witches and and the various different names of the witches like perkter and berkter and birched and perked and you know uh it, it just there's literally hundreds of names that I found across Europe, all describing the same or similar characters. One being the witch that um, was invited by the wise men to uh, come along and see the birth of this Messiah, this, this being, this super being. And she said that she was too busy and she had cleaning to do kind of thing, <laughs> which is really weird. Um, and so they went, okay. And they just went off and, you know, followed the star or whatever and went to find him. And then she sort of got her chores done and regretted not going with them and, and then went off to find the child and never could. And it's quite a sad story, this legend. And she'll go from house to house on the eve of the epiphany um, looking for children. And if they've done their chores, then they'll get silver coins in their shoes. And if they haven't, she'll slit their bellies open and fill the bellies with trash and straw and sew them back up. And there's, wow. so, there's so many different variations of this. And it's because she's bitter and angry at herself. And she's, you know, also trying to teach children to sort of, you know, never let down a good opportunity to go and see the Messiah or something, you know, all these different morals are, are completely twisted over time. And I think it surprises people that there's so much more to it than just, the nativity and the birth of Jesus. And, you know, Christmas has so many more darker legends, which are nothing to do with the Bible, which came far earlier, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny because I like, I just finished doing all the art for um, Chad Lewis's upcoming book, Winter Legends and Lore. Mm. And there was stuff in there that he gave me this whole list of of drawings and whatnot that he needed. And I mean, there was stuff in there like I had to research because I'd not heard of some of these before. And I think one of the ones that surprised me the most was uh, that if you were, I think, born born within the 12 days of Christmas, the odds are that you're going to turn into a werewolf. And like just really strange things like that. <laughs> I thought that's so interesting. I've heard that one as being, um, I think, if, if you're born on Christmas Day, um, the birthday of Jesus, then yes, you become a werewolf. Um, I'm sure there's variations to it, but it makes you yeah. think. It's like, you know, wouldn't it be a blessing if you were born on that thing? Shouldn't that be celebrated? Why would you be cursed? You know, it's a little, um, it's like a bit of jealousy going on there. It's like, you can't have that birthday. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's weird. Why well, it's, would you be turned into a werewolf? You know, 
of all things. <laughs> well, and it's it's neat that it pulls into concepts like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we're seeing a little bit of a hint of like the Lugaru or something like that. Some of that legend kind of being pulled in. It makes you kind of wonder, mm. you know, if that was, you know, a year more towards the European side of things, if maybe that's what where we're we're seeing things come from. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's more more people were burned at the stake in in Europe in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages than witches were. The lycanthropy was so just widespread and this fear of it and vampirism too, but mostly of, of werewolfism more than witches. People were strung up and their hands were cut off and just awful things. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, you're right. It was very much at the forefront, forefront of Catholicism and, you know, you have the whole Roman connection with wolves and things as well. It makes you wonder. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, you, you've had some, some ties in with with some of these these cryptids because you were saying like you've done I mean you've done covers for David Weatherly and Ken Gerhardt friends that we know and yep. <laughs> um yeah and and you mentioned at one point is the with the beast of beast of Lytham I believe Lytham Lytham yeah, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that because I had not heard of this one before okay so this one's um yeah this is very close to home it's actually it takes place in my hometown uh, in England um, I, at the age of 10 years old, I was born in Liverpool, but at 10 years old, um, I moved to, uh, the Northwest of England in a little town called Lytham St. Anne's or specifically St. Anne's. It's two little towns next to each other. And in Lytham, there was a, a newspaper story I'd seen in the local gazette of, um, a beast that someone had described seeing in the local field, which backs onto a great expanse of fields that go on forever all the way up into the mountains and beyond. And it really got my attention because I thought, well, there's a, an open backyard for big cats are a big thing in the UK in terms of they're not supposed to be there. They're known as ABCs or alien big cats. Um, and that's a whole other avenue of, of, you know, escaped pets or released pets from the 1970s when they brought the zoo laws in and licenses and things like that. When you had an exotic pet, most people wouldn't have them destroyed or given to the zoo. They just let them loose on the moors. And so you have Bodmin Moor and the Surrey Puma and things like that. So it caught my attention that this beast had been seen in the backfields of Lytham. And the odd thing was, though, that the description of it was it was the size of a large dog. So maybe German Shepherd or Labrador. Um, but it had long ears like a rabbit. And it looked like a, a giant rabbit. And at one point it had growled at someone. And, and so it just painted this really obscurely weird creature. Um, so I contacted the newspaper and I said, well, if you like, I'll do a, <laughs> I'll, I'll do a witness description sketch sort of rendition of all the different sightings put together. And, and they said, oh yeah, go for it. You know? So I mashed them all together <laughs> and created this thing that looked not unlike one person had pointed out, and it didn't occur to me at the time, but it, it does. It looked like uh, Wally Coyote in a way because um, <laughs> it's got the big long ears um, and a sort of scruff tail. Um, but I think, you know, I think if anything, if this thing is out there, um, uh, the most likely culprit, there are two options. It's either um, a bobcat or lynx type character with the long ears and the puff tail, which do have rabbit-like legs and they do bound about. So it's quite possibly a lynx or bobcat type, which isn't impossible. Um, 
or as most people, even the, the rival newspaper of the local town had suggested, the most likely culprit for these sightings was a, a deer um, known as a muntjac deer that have tusks that look like big long fangs. Right. Um, and there was a, 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 the family, the Clifton family, who had founded the town, you know, hundred some years ago. Um, they have a big mansion and an estate in the town and it's open to the public today. They even do ghost tours and that kind of thing. Um, but back in the day, they had exotic animals in the grounds, which is walled in. And they have peacocks and uh, pheasants, obviously, all, all around in the UK. But you have, you know, these beautiful big pheasants and, and peacocks. And they imported a small herd of muntjac deer, because I believe they're Russian originally. Um, so you have all these deer running around in the estate. And legend has it, or history has it that these bred and some got out and they're still somewhat surviving and jumping around out there. And so it's quite possible that these people had seen what doesn't quite look like a deer that they mm. weren't expecting and maybe their imagination ran away with them. Mine certainly did. Um, but I also think it's quite exciting that I could draw something that was based on several witness accounts to come up with a creature that really um looks quite surreal like it looks like a half rabbit half dog and it's large and you know it looks quite monstrous um but the funny thing was is then people started coming forward saying that that's what they'd seen and so i had in, inadvertently added to the mythology <laughs> by putting it in people's heads um and i i wonder if that you know of course must happen quite often with all kinds of cryptozoology even if it's just word of mouth and someone just wants some attention they'll they'll adopt the story and change it for their own means much like the church did with the pagan religions they co-opted those those creatures and made them their own and then sold them on again and, and more people got interested in it that way and so yeah with the beast of Lytham, um i wouldn't say it's out there but who knows <laughs> Well, Mike, you, I mean, you just came back from the UK. What do you... <laughs> I didn't see it. No, oh, I was in well, London. Well, but I'm disappointed. So. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I saw people begging for change. That's, that's as, about yeah. as cryptic yeah. as things got there. So. Mm. He brought yeah. me home no yeah. good photos. No good no. photos, Mike. I just, None. just What were you doing over there? Well, I was actually in the uh, British Museum <laughs> taking pictures of mummies most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, lovely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a great museum. That's a good oh, one. It's fantastic. And it's free. Yeah, well, they're all free. The whole UK, the museums, museums yeah. are free. So it's healthcare. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, that's one of, the, one of the good things about the UK. Free museums, free galleries, <laughs> yeah. and rightly so. To distract you from the energy crisis. That's <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe they, yeah. maybe they could just sort of turn the lights down a little bit and save the energy. But um, did you see the Pazuzu head in the British Museum? No. The, you know, the exorcist with the little statuette of yeah. Pazuzu that he finds and he crumbles the dirt out of it. They actually have the the real one oh. in the glass case there. Oh, man. And, oh, and, my heart. and you can go and see it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And they've got the, the wax seal, John D, the great occultist. They've got his wax seal with the sort of 10-pointed star in there and all the little iconography carved into the wax with a pin wow. that's in the case sort of below it um pretty amazing stuff yeah but i was surprised to see how small pazuzu was this this little thing it's just like the movie a little very undetailed 
mm-hmm. head, you know. Oh, and it's such an icon. I mean, it's it's iconic now. I mean, I'm, I'm Mike. I'm just extremely disappointed in you. <laughs> Everybody is. You just have to go back. Yeah, exactly. It's just his excuse to go back. But you were you were mentioning Sam um, when you're 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 drawing these these different creatures that you you mentioned that you were picking from different eyewitnesses and these different accounts and and things mm-hmm. like that. When you're compiling something like a, a cover for a book or or one of these creatures, like what what is it that that you're you're drawing from? How much of it is is your creation versus some of the things that people are saying? Like what what's your process with that? That's a good question um, because I'm very much these days um, a skeptic in terms of when I say a skeptic, I mean. I like to look at things in the most plausible, realistic way. So even if I'm illustrating uh, a cryptid that's as obscurely bizarre as the Jersey Devil, I still will come at it from a realistic standpoint of, you know, how how would this look if it really were a, a living, breathing creature? Um, back in the day when I when I illustrated the Beast of Green Drive, that was 2005. So. I was really um, one of the first cryptids I'd done that was published. Um, and so it was a bit of fun for me at the time. But but looking back, I almost want to maybe re-illustrate it today, um, give it an update. Because when I do covers for, say, David Weatherly or Ken Gerhard, you know, whether it's a Bigfoot or a lake monster or a flying creature of some kind, it always has to come down to the witness descriptions. Now, we just mentioned that maybe these descriptions can be embellished slightly and are exaggerated. And you have to use a little bit of common sense and rewind that thinking and almost dig a little deeper into the language someone's using when they're describing something. Um, maybe even look at where that person's from and why they're using those particular words or phrases to describe a certain thing, because they might actually mean something else. That's just uh, a limitation on on where they're from. And it could be a language barrier thing. It could be an accent or uh, regional dialect difference from one county to the next. Um, someone might say puma when they mean mountain lion. Someone mean mountain lion when they mean jaguar. You know, there's so many different things. Um, and yet, you know, there I'm mentioning three cats, whereas one of them is different. But they're all big cats. Uh, you know, a mountain lion and a puma are the same thing. So is a cougar, but a jaguar is completely different. And yet they're all big cats. And so when I'm illustrating something, I have to really dig deep into the description of what something is. And the most varied of all descriptive cryptids out there are Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never come across maybe, you know, bar lake monsters. I've never s- sort of read or heard quite so many accounts of Bigfoot that are all so very different and you can say uh there's a sort of a consensus that i've started to notice in various podcasts and books um on the subject of bigfoot and sasquatch these days very recently people are starting to culminate to this conclusion that there are different types of bigfoot in different Mm -hmm. regions even within the u.s and people people say that towards you know alaska and northern territories and in Canada and beyond, the Sasquatch seem to be much bigger, much taller. And the ones down in the swamps near Florida and, and you know, the, that whole region down in the south seem to be a lot smaller and almost chimp-like. But also you'll have the more aggressive types down there, whereas in the Pacific Northwest, you have these 
what are described as almost general giants. And it's really weird because the descriptions are all fairly similar. And as I was saying, just like the big cats, they're all sort of mystery apes or mystery hominids, whichever you know camp you want to land in on, on what they are. Um, these mystery primates, if you want to call them that, are all very similar, but they do seem to be incredibly different. Even the faces are described incredibly different. But then you look at ourselves. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Mike now. He looks completely different to me. Um, you know, his hair's different. His eyes are different. His face shape's different. But we're the same. We're both men. We're both white. We're both male. We're probably around the same height. Um, but it, it's just odd. And I think it's the same with Bigfoot and Sasquatch. I think maybe they are more human in a sense that that's why they look so different between each other. Because they're, they're very much a type of people. And you only have to look at the footprints. They're human-shaped footprints, aren't they? Right. So they can't be too far away. Absolutely. Well, it's it, it it's interesting to hear um, Dr. Jeff Meldrum talk about this because um, he has come out a number of times saying that they they are extremely different, like to the point where they might not even be within the same family. They might be completely separate. Mm. And the the um, examples that he often uses are um, the the footprints say, for example, in Russia, whether it be the Shipton track or, you know, whichever. Mm -hmm. But he's always said, you know, there is, uh, you know, a diverse of big toe that's usually seen with the Yeti tracks where with Bigfoot there isn't. And he's, yeah, he's referenced a number of times where he thinks that they are, they're just absolutely not, they're just not the same. Um, Where you've got down in in Florida with the the skunk ape and whatnot, again, like more chimp or orangutan-like almost, like they tend to be rather thick and squat. So I I, I mean, it it makes sense to me that they would be, you know, unique, especially when you've you've got different animals in different regions. You know, you've got the swamps of Florida versus, you know, the wilderness of of Canada. I mean, you're going to have to have different feet to to navigate Mm -hmm. that terrain. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Different hair type, uh, different diet. Yeah, absolutely. Completely different. It's funny. You mentioned the Shipton photograph um, of the Yeti footprints um, from the 1950s. I've got a really large uh, printout of that photograph somewhere. It's around here. I've just had it framed. Um, Yeah, to put it up. But I've looked at that for many years and it's always, it's that romantic image, isn't it? The one with the pickaxe sort of laying next to it for size comparison. Um, and it has this huge, almost like a double big toe. And the more I looked at it, it just something sticking out to me in the back of my mind. There's just something not right about it. I'm not convinced. And yet I'm, you know, as much as I, I said earlier, I'm, I'm very much a skeptic. I like to look at things from a very believable point of view of figuring things out. Um, I'm extremely open-minded. I am, and I'm a believer in many ways of uh, being open-minded as much as possible. And I think that, that, is an essential part of being a skeptic. You have to be open-minded. Absolutely. Um, to, to see every angle. You can't just poo-poo it. That doesn't make you a skeptic. If anything, you're not a skeptic if you say something isn't real. You're the opposite. Um, and that goes to the same with UFOs and ghosts and stuff. If you just say, you know, oh, no, it can't possibly be an alien race because we haven't detected nuclear signatures in space, so therefore there are no aliens. That's just ignorant to me. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, I agree. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you know. Um, that's a whole other can of worms, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. But the Shipton photograph, I looked at it, and 
you know, everyone in our, in our little gang, we have, you know, folders upon folders on our desktops of things we've saved of, you know, lake monsters or Thunderbird photographs or footprints or, you know, we've all got those, don't we? Um, but uh, I have several versions of this footprint and it's, you know, I'll see it on a website and it'll look slightly different on a website and I'll, and I'll say, but I'll think, oh, that looks a little different. I'll save that again because I want to sort of have a better look at it from different angles up in the contrast, a different sharpness to it, a different size, pixelation. Maybe there's a slightly different photograph from a different angle. I've been looking for these everywhere. And I found a website um, where someone had lain over a previous photograph and did a sort of a transparent 50% so you could see through and see both images at once. And all of a sudden, it's become pretty clear that that's actually a Sherpa footprint and then another Sherpa footprint stepped diagonally across it. Interesting. Mm. And, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. And yeah. so now I'm convinced that's not a yay footprint at all. And it breaks my heart, but um, the original photograph itself was sold, I think, six, five, six years ago. Um, at Shirley, uh, what did they call it? Christie's? Yep. I was going to call it Shirley's. <laughs> uh, Christie's, yeah. Um, and I think it went for five thousand dollars or something. But um, yeah, so I, I have this original photograph blown up uh, in in a print size because it is a romantic thing. It's you know it's one of those iconic, legendary pieces of this this whole genre, isn't it, of the unexplained? And yeah, I look at it now and I can't unsee these two footprints that are sort of placed over each other. Even the big toe, there are photographs of Sherpa's bare footprints, uh, bare feet. Sorry. Um, that they would walk in the snow with, and they have divergent toes. Now, if you think of um, ballet dancers or um, uh, uh, Japanese women with their feet crunched up in little shoes and how their feet become deformed and bunched up, it's quite the opposite with the Sherpas. They're sort of almost broken out sideways to grip rocks and to climb through the snow, and they have you know these really tough... Um, large bony feet and they're all, they're quite deformed looking and once you see that these are real people with those feet and we're talking you know back in the day where perhaps they didn't have the footwear we have today um these people may not be around today but in the early days of the explorations and the mountaineering of mount everest and that whole region the sherpas were pretty much just you know regular local people who lived there day in day out and so they were quite happy to walk around barefoot and there are, as I say, photographs of these feet, um, and I can send you some, um, which look like Yeti feet with big divergent toes. Wow. And when you when you see these footprints laid over, you can quite clearly see that it's just a Sherpa's footprint laid over mm. another Sherpa's footprint. And again, that's why you have this sort of double big toe kind of image, which doesn't appear on any other footprint. That's always been a kind of a red flag for me. Um, why this thing seems to have two big toes. And now I can see why it does. That's so, it's the first time I've ever heard that theory presented because usually the the typical theory is, oh, it's a double step of a, of a bear. And it clearly isn't. It's it's clearly something else. And and so, that, yeah, thank you for, <laughs> thank you for bringing that up because now I, I want to go, I want to look, take a look at yeah, it. It's really cool. Exactly. For the longest time, I played devil's advocate and I thought, you know, okay, so maybe they, maybe they faked it. Because you don't see a second footprint or a trail of them, other than the separate photograph, which is clearly goat footprints that have bled out in the sun. 
which look nothing like that one Shipton photograph with mm-hmm. the pickaxe. Um, you never see any other footprint other than this one, which is clearly a fluke. Um, and for the longest time, I thought, well, okay, let's say it is a fake and they did it for fun. Um, maybe they heard stories and they wanted to scare their buddies or whatever. It it does in some ways, if you can imagine someone wearing a big mitten glove, almost like an oven glove, um, it almost looks as though it could have even been someone pushing their hand into the snow to create that image. Because again, if this if this creature were to be a thousand pounds in weight, even 500 pounds in weight, um, it's going to make a, a much deeper impression in the snow than it does on that picture. Um, and so all of these details, when you take them into account, you add them up, it's um, it's sad, but it really does look like a Sherpa's footprint to me. That's, that's as I say, that, that's the first time I've ever heard that theory. And I, I think that's really, really cool. But you haven't been completely devoid of, of controversy yourself with your art show that you did a number of years ago, A Walk on the Dark Side. Oh man! <laughs> uh, to me, because uh, your your art is amazing, especially your art with the, like the, the the mechanized animals and and things like that. Well, we are going to put the link up for everybody to go to your website so they can buy prints and see this because it's really phenomenal. Thank you. Well, it's it has to be done. <laughs> it has to be your your, your stuff <laughs> is just so good. Uh, but it, tell us a little bit about that art show and what you wanted from the project and and how it turned into what it did. Um, well, I mean, that's so long ago now. Um, that's almost 20 years ago. (laughs) It's a long time, Uh, long time. Yeah. I think that was 2003, I believe. Um, and yeah, I just, as I say, I just left university a couple of years before and, um, I then went on to sort of do, uh, um, teaching and and I'd been an art teacher for a year or so and I thought I'm gonna have my own exhibition before I sort of hang up my potential to have fun and go out and do things in the world you know I'm not going to be a teacher just yet um but I you know I got my qualification and I'm happy to have that extra bullet on my belt to use later in life um but it wasn't for me at the time I thought I'm not going to dive into teaching just yet uh, I'm going to start with an exhibition of my own and I'm going to go off and do other things first. Um, not to say that teaching is bad, you know, some people love it and that's great. Uh, I just wasn't ready. Um, so I had this exhibition and I, it was 45 pieces of artwork, um, six foot tall statues uh, that I'd, I'd made from various car parts and all kinds of just junk I'd found that I'd molded into people. Um and there were canvas paintings in there and it was all kinds of stuff. There was, as I say, 45 pieces. And a couple of the pieces I put in there were sort of just gimmicky, fun, toying ideas. Um, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's when you have an idea and someone steals it, it makes you wish you, you hadn't just put a sketch out there first to sort of show that you had thought of it first. So these were just like little ideas that I threw out, which was getting teddy bears which i then called daddy bears um and i i'd cut all the eyes out and i think i'd collected something like 400 teddy bears from various thrift stores and uh, charity shops and things like that um so there was a massive shortage and a lot of crying children that didn't have bears for a long time <laughs> and you were um, broken hearted about that because of me yeah terrible person um i i was samta claus <laughs> uh, and I, <laughs> uh, it, 
the anti claws, yeah. Um, so I'd taken all these bears from all these shops, uh, which then obviously never ended up in the hands of children, which I'm not sorry about, but never mind. Um, you sh- sorry, you, not you sorry. You shouldn't be sorry because they were amazing by the no. time you were done. <laughs> well, yeah, I cut all the eyes out and I still have a big bag full of these glassy teddy bear eyes, which I've yet to do with something too. But all these bears then suddenly didn't have eyes and it all came from a, a childhood experience. Um, I think there must have been four or five, but my mum used to have to turn the the toys around at night because they're all set on a shelf um, because their eyes would glisten every time a car drove past. Mm. And it looked to me as though their heads were turning and looking at me. And so it would freak me out and I couldn't handle these, these toys that that weren't moving, but their heads would turn and their eyes would turn and look at me. And it was obviously a trick of the light but it always stuck with me and, it, and it, I found it terrifying. So I collected all these teddy bears and I cut all their eyes out and I put nails in their eyes instead, <laughs> um, which was obviously an influence from Clive Barker. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I painted them all black and stained them all black. And then I sewed them all to a huge canvas and some of them were on wooden blocks and they were nailed to these blocks and things like that. And obviously I'd used some sort of special effects to create little guts coming out of some of them and blood and whatnot. So that it looked as though they were real on the inside and and they were, you know, damaged in pain in some way. Um, and yeah, it, uh, again, it was just a gimmick. It was just a bit of fun. I thought it was a little concept that I'll throw into this exhibition with my other work, which was more serious. However, it was the teddy bears that caught the eye of the newspapers um <laughs> so it ended up on you know the front page of uh, the local newspaper and then it ended up in the daily telegraph and the national news oh, and then oh, the no. bbc covered it wow <laughs> i had an interview live on bbc radio and uh and it was funny because at one point um there was a breakfast morning television show that we're going to go live from the gallery and they were going to come down and interview me um and go head to head with a woman who owned a teddy bear museum in the local town who thought that I was the worst thing on earth. And she wanted to, (laughs) you know, she wanted to basically slap my wrist in a a sense, you know, and they wanted to do a kind of celebrity death match and and have me on the breakfast morning explaining myself to this woman. (laughs) And then I thought, okay, I'm, I'll go with that. Yeah, I can I can defend my artwork. I have the the story behind it and the reasoning and and it is just a piece of art, you know. Um and really I was more interested in the world seeing my other artwork that I put my heart and soul right. into. <laughs> and so I thought, well, okay, well this is this is the gimmick. This is going to grab the press's attention. I'll go with it. Fine. Um and so it came to the sort of the morning of uh this uh breakfast morning television show which were going to arrive with the live cameras. And this woman was going to sort of say, you know, how dare you hurt my teddy bears? And it was funny because in the newspaper, this woman had, um, she had already commented. It was like a reader's section where you could write a review. And and six weeks this went on in the newspapers. Every, every day they'd print something new. And she was in there one day saying that um, she considers her bears friends and that she talks to them. And I and I replied with you know well who's the weirdo because <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, you know because I'm not the one who's talking to the bears, yeah. um, but needless to say, unfortunately, um, the live 
head to head conversation uh, on breakfast television didn't go ahead because uh, that same morning, uh, George Bush had declared war. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, and so that was that, you know, um, 2003 uh, was a very strange year. Yeah. <laughs> For a lot of people. And unfortunately, that's just the way it was. Um, and so it kind of fizzled out from there. But uh, yeah, it was, it was funny. There was a, there was a radio station, BBC Radio One had, had uh, a show on there with these two comedians and every day, it was funny because I would listen to this radio just by pure coincidence as well, that, that actual show and I had nothing to do with it, but they had chosen um, every day they would pick three stories from three different newspapers and they'd read them out and then they would get um, the listeners to call in suggesting a song for a particular one of those three stories. And then they would pick the best one and play the song. Um, and they picked mine and um, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, look at that. I'm on the show that I listened to. That's really weird. And they played the Pixies wave of mutilation. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. But um, yeah, it was a long time ago. That. Oh, Goodness me. I'm glad, <laughs> glad you told the story, though, because I, I tell you, the, the world of as soon as you get into anything remotely paranormal and dark, people's imaginations go crazy and i've always said over the years that i think a part of it and it it might this might resonate with you too is that i think this types of this type of subject matter whether it be you know uh, creepy teddy bears or even hauntings or anything like this i i think it it challenges parts of people that they they either don't know what to do with or they don't know how to process it and it becomes a matter of either you know fear and then the fear turns into blame and they've they've got to put it somewhere and and i noticed within my career it, that's what i've watched over and over again is that there seems to be this kind of this this backlash towards anything that challenges people's paradigms about life or themselves <laughs> specifically themselves and mm-hmm. I, I kind of wonder if if maybe you know in, in a situation like with this woman if that might have been in there as well for her yeah i would imagine so um and it's you know i've, I've nothing against her at all i completely empathized with where she was coming from because of course she does very much enjoy collecting teddy bears and has the museum for them so um i thought it was yeah in many ways it was a little unfair to do that to both of us but it made for great television that never happened thankfully in some ways thankfully um but uh you know i would never i would never have um destroyed her <laughs> <laughs> uh i think i would have been still quite polite about it you know and maybe in that way inadvertently make made her look silly perhaps by being mm. so polite and proving to her that i wasn't the crazy one um <laughs> maybe maybe but as you say you know it, it makes you wonder if someone's led let's say a sheltered life um this is why they have ratings on horror movies um so that kids don't watch them. But of course, you know, I remember being at school and kids were talking about Freddy Krueger and, and you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff like that. And I hadn't seen those films until much later in life, believe it or not. Um, I was more interested in natural history and listening to David Attenborough or, <laughs> you know, the most I got close to uh, horror was Hammer Horror and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. That was my sort of bag of horror. Um and so going to the video store, I would, I would walk past these 
you know, Friday the 13th with Jason on the cover or the Halloween Michael Myers and Freddy, as I say, and, and even Penhead, Doug Bradley on, on Clive Barker's Hellraiser, I wouldn't see these films for years um, because in many ways I'd, I'd not been scared off them, but I, I didn't see them being of any use to me because to me they were just horrific stories of people slicing each other up and that just didn't appeal to me. And so it wasn't until later in life that I really got into the Hellraiser mythos and and the romance and the deeper stories that are interwoven in that that Clive had mm-hmm. created with the idea of different dimensions and beings coming from other worlds where there is no religion and it isn't about God and stuff like that. Um, there's a great line in one of the Hellraiser films where Penhead appears and this this character, this human sort of victim says, you know, oh, God, help me kind of thing. And Penhead replies with, do you really think I look like someone who cares what think, God yeah. thinks? You know, yeah. it's a great and, line. And it's and it's it's wonderful because it just paints this whole picture of, of this world that is so more deeper than Satan. It, it's beyond that. And yet you have this satanic panic uh, in the 80s with Dungeons and Dragons and you're having it today now where we have this um, massive, massive wave of popular culture with with the advent of the streaming channels of Netflix and Amazon and everything else that goes with it, and even the internet, especially with YouTube and stuff. We now have generations of kids who um, they're exposed to stuff that they're not as um, shielded in a way. And I think it almost ruins the aspect of and perhaps it's making people more extreme. Maybe they're thirsting for extremism because they're not shielded from what we would originally have considered to be horrific. You know, seeing someone being chased by a chainsaw wielding mask of human flesh, you know, back in the 80s as a, as a kid was terrifying. And even adults going to see that would leave the theater terrified and be completely paranoid for weeks after it and having nightmares about it and stuff. Whereas now, Kids are looking at far worse on their phone. Um, and they're looking at real life, which is far worse on their phone. It reminds me of, of a great quote from, from Marilyn Manson where, and this was maybe 10 years ago, where he said he considers his, his uh, career over. And this was 15, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and he said, because he's not shocking anymore. He says, when there are people getting their heads cut off in the news, I can't, he says, I can't compete with that. He's like, I'm not shocking anymore. And I think it's the same with horror movies and popular culture and the unexplained in particular, where we have 20 different ghost shows on the channel currently. Isn't that the truth? You know, there was a time, there was a, there was a time when it was hard pressed to find one program, never mind a series, but just one documentary on ghosts. It was hard to find anything. And now we have I mean, how many seasons of Ghost Adventures? Is it 20 something now? Oh, at seasons least. Now? And they keep rebooting it and recasting and it. And he has yeah. other shows mm-hmm. as well and, and side projects and stuff. Um, and some of the shows are, are, are really good. Um, not so much Ghost Adventures because I think that's a one trick pony. And I'm still waiting for them to release their album because um, they are, you know, they look like a boy band. So I'm, I'm waiting for that. <laughs> I could you agree know, more. They're, always, they're always stood there posing in their suits, like, you know, what are the Backstreet Boys kind of pose? Um, so I'm waiting for that. I'm waiting for the Ghost Adventures album to be released. Um, looking forward to that one. Uh, but yeah, there's some good shows out there. There's just too many. And I think, again, it waters everything down. 
nothing's scary anymore. Nothing's disturbing anymore. Um, even podcasts about ghosts, you know, I, I'm still working on mine. It's been over a year and I'm really finding it um, tormenting to, to put it in a place where when you tell a ghost story, it's really hard to scare someone. It's really hard to give someone a shiver or disturb them because people are just meh. Yeah. You know, I saw worse on the CW, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. Well, that's something that Mike and I, like when we started this show, we were really um, trying to figure out which direction to take supernatural circumstances. And uh, I think that's mm. one of the reasons why we picked the direction that we did was that, you know, we wanted to take these subjects to another level because that's to, to yeah. us, that's where the interesting discussion is, is the, the, the nitty gritty of, of, you know, the universe and that sort of magic side of, of our, mm. our world around us. And then, you know, the fascinating people within that realm, like you and, and the other guests that, you know, that we've had on, and I think it's, it, it, but it, it's a tough one because mm, you know, people yeah. are, they're, they're looking, often looking to, for that thriller to be terrified or whatever. And especially with, with this subject matter, the majority of it isn't terrifying. And that mm, can be yeah. a struggle for people too, where they're expecting this terrifying thing, where well, oftentimes with the paranormal, it's just, it's simply not. It's simply just how the universe mm. works. And it's it's such a special, it's a special thing to delve into. But, you know, the media likes to really play it up and <laughs> send it over the edge. Yeah. This whole conversation reminds me of, uh, I can't remember where I saw it. I was watching a TV show or a movie or something. It might have been The Alienist where uh, a bunch of people are in the movie theater in the uh, in the early 1900s, maybe even the late 1800s, and they're watching waves come in, and they're oh, they're terrified by these waves because they've never seen on a screen before them waves rolling in, yeah. and it was like yeah. it was like they were on a roller coaster. That's a great one. Yeah, yeah. I I remember this. Uh, it's a similar one where there's a train coming towards mm -hmm. the camera. And people are jumping out of their seats because they just think this thing's going to come crashing through. Um, <laughs> so what is it that's going to scare this generation of people? What is it that's going to going to yeah, put yeah. the fear of who knows what into well, us? It's it's funny because, um, you know, with the ghost shows, the the most popular podcasts out there um, are true crime. And you look at the statistics and it's way above everything else. Every other subject in podcasting are completely across the board, whatever it's cooking or whatever. Mm -hmm. True crime is just astronomically popular. And I've seen a lot of the ghost shows on TV lean towards more of a historical presentation of what happened to these people before they died, um, rather than the scare factor of the haunt. And now the haunt industry around Halloween is, is you know, it's a multi-million dollar attraction-based themed costume, you know, extravaganza of commercial selling of products and things like that. Whereas the haunt aspect of a real place on, on paranormal television in these documentaries seems to be leaning way, way more towards true crime. And they're all starting to sort of adapt and copy each other with the same gimmicks of, you know, what was this family that lived here and what happened to them and why did they do this? And then there's the other little group that sort of jam themselves in there that are very Christian based that believe that they can talk to the spirits and uh, move them on 
to a better place or, mm. you know, give them peace or move the spirits on. And you have that little niche of paranormal shows as well. And I think, you know, for the most part, I hate to say it, but it's all a gimmick and it's for television and it's mm-hmm. theatrical and it's written because you can't demand that every week and it works. Yeah. And yet yeah. some people sort of have this piano music at the end and everyone holds hands and they're like, oh, you're free now. And I just think, <laughs> come on now, you're ridiculous. Yeah. As somebody who has researched parapsychology for 20 years, mm-hmm. I can vouch for you. It is completely not real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's so unrealistic when it comes oh, yeah. to the real world of parapsychology. I mean, it, there's so much of that that genre that is, I mean, it is pure entertainment, mm-hmm. whatever. Well, Sam, thank you so much for being here for tonight. This has been absolutely wonderful. But tell people, website, where people can find you, where they can find your work. We're going to post it because it's amazing. Thank Go you. for it. Um, well, I mean, all my links, all the social media, um, YouTube, Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, I think even Tumblr, maybe. Um, and my email, of course, you can access uh, all of that on one site, which is mrsamsheeran.com. So the Mr. is spelt as the word Mr. M-I-S-T-E-R. And then my name, S-A-M, S-H-E-A-R-O-N. So it's like Ed Sheeran, but spelled correctly. He spells his wrong and more metal, um, more metal than Ed Sheeran. Far, far more metal than Ed Sheeran, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so MrSamSheeran.com, you'll find everything there. And of course, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, drop me a line, add me, follow me, like me, love me. <laughs> All of that stuff. Thank you, Sam. This has been amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Mike. Awesome. Well, that was wonderful. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the inner space process. This is a great process for when things seem chaotic or you're finding your mind overrun with a lot of clutter. Sometimes, when the mind begins to run you instead of you running the mind, it can seem overwhelming, frustrating, and downright debilitating. So, close your eyes. You'll find that the mind tries to immediately take over, telling you all the things you should be doing, or not doing, or need to be done. But this time, bring your focus into your inner body. Begin with your hands, and as you sit in this stillness, Feel the aliveness of your hands, the tingling, the movement. Draw this focus into your chest and throughout your body. Feel the tingling aliveness that is spirit coursing through you. Spend a few moments feeling this and take some deep breaths along with exhales as you focus. You will find that an inner space arises within you when you focus on this inner work and breath. Don't fight to hang on to it. If a thought comes, let it go. When you feel complete, open your eyes and enjoy the new sense of aliveness that is now present within you. Being this practice and bringing this practice into your day, you will find that it becomes easier and easier. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances. 
a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>